True or false? It's really easy to build a coalition, as evidenced by things like MAD and designated drivers. It's easy, right? I would say that is false, but I think you (laughs) knew that. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford. And if you've been thinking to yourself, I really wish someone could share frameworks, experience, and guidance on how to help coalitions be successful, well, guess what? You, my friends, are in exactly the right place. Over the next two episodes of The Spark, we'll be talking with Sarah Brenna, president of Community Wealth Partners, an organization created by the nonprofit Share Our Strength to lift up what's working. After partnering with more than 500 organizations over two decades, Community Wealth Partners doesn't claim to have it all figured out, but does have key insights and models that we're excited to introduce you to in these episodes. We're kicking things off in part one as Sarah walks us through Community Wealth Partners' social transformation lifecycle, which you can download by checking the link in the show notes. We also asked Sarah to pick a story of a favorite coalition from anywhere in her travels across the country, and it just so happens that she chose a project from right here in Arizona. So let's get to it. It's time to get to know Community Wealth Partners' work and learn more about what propels coalitions to make the big changes we all want to see in the world. we've got a tremendous person in the room today. Her name is Sarah Brenner from Community Wealth Partners. Sarah, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. Here comes the hard question. What the heck is Community Wealth Partners and why do you do what you do? So Community Wealth Partners is a social impact uh, consultancy located out of Washington, D.C., work all over the nation. We are the subsidiary of Share Our Strength that has the No Kid Hungry campaign, and we were founded to work with foundations, nonprofits, and coalitions in solving social problems um, really at the magnitude that they exist, so thinking about how to bring about population-level change and really social transformation. I do what I do because every day I am inspired, frankly, by bringing together communities to have deeper understanding and to solve problems and to really, you know, help people see progress in a different way, um, to learn differently and to design strategies that will change, frankly, change the world. And that really excites, excites us. We work on issues, everything from health to education to transportation and housing and really sort of look for making change at the intersection where we can bring around big population level change for different states. So that is my passion. What is Community Wealth Partners doing here, working with Vitalists and working with nonprofits in Arizona? Well, it is our mission to support and to partner with key leading change organizations to try to bring about big population level change. And Vitalists in particular, in addition to a lot of other foundations here, are focused on investing in coalitions and making that type of change. And so we have loved working in this community and working across the state to help advance that. You just mentioned the big bad word, coalitions. You've got a social transformation life cycle that can be used to talk about how coalitions form, evolve, and grow. Yeah. Take us through what the social transformation life cycle is. And by the way, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. Just to take a step back, we started to study 
how coalitions are formed and why they're formed, and really wanted to look at how they made change over time. And what we found was that many organizations had ways of talking about their organizational development and the stages that they were in, from being nascent to being very mature organizations. And so we thought it would be helpful to kind of help coalitions think about their own maturity and their own growth in four different stages. And so what we found when we studied these different coalitions is that the first stage really was about the coalition coming together, and we talk about it as kind of framing the effort. So framing the effort, this is really where coalitions are beginning to form. And we found this to be obviously the first stage when you have groups coming together and they in particular need to focus on how to establish their goals, their strategy, and who are the people that they need around the table. This part of the effort really is about getting momentum to inspire others to want to join and be participants in the work, but also really starting to begin to create the infrastructure that is needed to sustain the coalition over the long term. Isn't this kind of the shiny new phase? Like usually people are pretty excited and it works pretty well? Yes and no. I think it depends on the amount of urgency and and you know sometimes the challenges that are bringing folks together I mean it's certainly as you think about issues of like immigration what's happening right now I mean sometimes people get thrown together into coalitions not in the best of times but it is really the period I would always say of most hope and also in the time when people have the most energy around those issues. So it's really a time to capitalize on bringing in different types of partners that maybe you're not thinking about. So how do you get the right energy at the table? And also, it's never too early to begin to think about financially. How do you try to sustain the coalition? If that can be done in stage one, that's very helpful. So true. Now your second stage, proving the solution or solutions. I imagine this is where a lot of things happen. Yeah. So the second stage is really about, you know, we've been around now for a year or two. We need to actually prove to people that this is something that should be sustained over time. You have to begin to show that you're actually making traction on a particular problem and that you have evidence for it. So where we see people in this stage is, you've already set your goals and your strategies, and you probably have the right people around the table, but you've got to begin to show that the interventions that you're working on in the ground is actually making progress. So this is where people are focused on advocacy and public policy. This is where people are focused on what are the right types of programs and kind of execution that we need or ways of implementing programs that are actually making a difference for the children and the families and the issues that we're working on. So stage two, sort of around the one to two year mark, is that right? Mm-hmm. All right, stage three, reaching dramatic improvement. How, how far are we now? Yeah, so now so now we, it probably depends. Anywhere from, I would say, four to 10 years out. I mean, these are long, these are kind of long efforts. To get here, what you're realizing is that you're, you have made progress within the communities that you're in, and that actually people are better off for the work that's going on in the coalition. So you're actually seeing results, but you want to reach more people, or you want to bring it to other communities. You're realizing that the work you're doing in your coalition should actually be statewide, not just specific to perhaps a rural community. This is about how do you actually try to bring about the scale that you're trying to have. And I will also say that in this, this stage, people tend to focus most on continuing to broaden the leadership and sustain the leadership as well as the stakeholder engagement, but also public policy and communications. Because those 
are really been the factors to engage more of the masses that you need, I think, to reach the kind of scale that people are talking about. So as I look at the descriptions underneath stage three, I see the word scale about nine times. Know, yeah, probably. <laughs> so is it really exclusively about scale in stage three, or do we have a little bit of a, hey, we learned something, we need to readjust? I think you have some, you have that in every stage. One of the key factors is continuous improvement and learning. And I think in the beginning, you're kind of framing out what would success look like, but you're constantly testing that in each one of the stages. One of the things I think that's most interesting that we have found is especially when you're applying this to scale, what you will learn is that some of the solutions that in stage two were working are not going to work now. They're going to have to be applied and tested differently, whether it's because you're working with a slightly different type of population in a different geography or a different age, or because now you need to figure out a way through communications to kind of broaden how a solution might work rather than delivering it one-on-one um, -on -one as in a, in a programmatic way. And we're not done when we get to stage three. There's actually stage four, which is which is titled Reinvigorating the Effort. So talk to us more about that one. Yeah, this, to be honest with you, this is my, fa I think this is my favorite because maybe because it's not reached often and it's okay. kind of exciting when you get there. I like to also term it the last mile. And largely, probably one of our best examples of this is thinking about the tobacco anti-smoking movement or other health movements where we've really been able to eradicate or very come very close to eradicating disease. So reinvigorating the effort or the last mile is really thinking about, well, if you've brought down the incidence of something um, that you're trying to work towards not happening, like smoking, for example, to a very small percentage, how do you reach the last 10%? And it actually takes really rethinking the strategy. One Another really good example here is your designated driver campaign. Big effort, right, to eliminate fatalities from, you know, from drunk driving. And the last mile for them is really working with alcoholics. You know, people who, it's not so easy to get a designated driver. And how do we actually think about shifting our strategies, shifting the programmatic work, shifting the communications to work with those individuals so they don't get in a car? And it will look different. And so the last mile, actually, in some cases, you have to go back almost to stage one in some cases in terms of not necessarily all the stakeholders that involved, but in thinking about what are the solutions and how do you bring them about to make change. The other thing we hear in this stage is that often funding is very difficult because people get excited that you've reached 10% of the population, let's focus on a different health issue besides smoking. We don't want to focus that on anymore. A lot of foundations just sort of left in heavy investment in tobacco, in, at least in America, because of how far we came. And so this is about how do we work with people to sustain it for even longer, and what do they do? So when our listeners download a copy of this, social transformation life cycle, they're gonna see 10 components mm -hmm. that go into all four of those stages. One component I wanna discuss that I'm sure is embedded in here, but I wanna see if we can track it all the way through the four stages on a more global space, is who is the audience across these four stages? I imagine in stage one, it's like the choir, right? The people who are already charged and into this issue. And then as you move through stages two, three, and four, that changes and evolves just like it does when you when you talked about the focus on on, on alcoholics in stage four. Yeah. So partly the audience you're trying to affect, but also the audiences that you need to rally to the cause. How does that fall through the four stages? Yeah. Well, what we actually suggest is that people are thinking about like a stakeholder map at all times in all different stages. And, you know, frankly, 
it really depends. What I what I would say is you're always going to have a core group of leaders and institutions and in some cases multi-sector organizations that are coming together that kind of see themselves as the leaders of leaders of this effort and you're always going to need a core group of leaders. What we found is that it changes based on what are the issues and the needs. Those leaders change in every single stage. So when you're going to scale, you're going to need more national leaders, more statewide leaders. You may need, and in certain cases, we see people pulling in the business community or other type of influencers, especially as you're trying to think about reaching more of the mass audience. The other thing that people often look at, so if you've got the institutions as one big segment that are core to solving the problem, the other group that you always want to have is who are the people that are affected by the problem. And those are people that should be helping you frame the solution at all times. And so based on who the target is and who are the people that we're trying to focus on, is it a designated driver that would be anyone between, you know, 18 and 55, or is it specific segments of people, maybe friends of those who have been affected by alcoholism, or is it going to be those that are the alcoholics themselves? Those, what you really need to think about is who are the people that are affected by the problem and how they can help actually solve the problem and come in and give and help support strategically. The other big thing to think about is sort of the general public and when and all do you engage them in your effort as like another key stakeholder group. And often that happens more in stage three or in stage four as you're trying to reach scale. True or false? It's really easy to build a coalition as evidenced by things like MAD and designated drivers. It's easy, right? I would say that is false, but I think you knew that. So maybe what you were really saying is that it's true, that it's difficult. I think coalition building work is probably the most difficult work, largely because it takes deep understanding between different diverse groups of people and because it requires people to address power dynamics that have long legacy within communities and address and confront competition. It's not necessarily the way that we have been built to work you know, in this work and in the country. So there's some undoing that needs to be done and new ways of working that is required in order to solve the problem. It takes a pretty bold and courageous leader you're, sets of leaders to do that. You're touching on some things that are that you're just barely touching, like <laughs> like systems, systems that are in place to keep you from being successful, like equity. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we think about those within the framework that you propose or do or is it something that is actually a whole different discipline beyond this life cycle I think you have to think about equity and systems change at the heart of the work you're doing. So when you think about the strategy that you're going to build, um, when you think about how you're going to engage people, what we what we see is that it is core to the work to be thinking about how to bring equity into how coalitions are designed, who's at the table, who has the power, how decisions are made, how people end up working and taking on leadership roles, who actually gets to make decisions. There are 
are many coalitions that are looking to bring more equitable practices into the work that has to do with raising up resonant voices and also disaggregating and um, sort of dismantling some of the power structures that exist in communities to get this work done and to actually change systems. I mean, you, you connected both equity and systems together. I did. You really need to make sure that you're that you're addressing the work in an equitable manner and that you actually put the system at the center of this so that people, part of the goal and part of the strategy is to change the system and that people are aligned around what that looks like. That is not necessarily an easy thing to do, but I think critical to this work. How does Community Wealth Partners coach nonprofits into doing that work right up front? Especially if you have an organization you're working with that can't even see the water that they're swimming in. Yeah, so one of the ways that we do that is to help people take a step back and think about the relationships that they're in and the ways of working and culture that they want to build. And so actually we go directly into conversations around, you know, people talk about who's at the table, but mapping what relationships look like, where are they today, and where do we need them to be? I'm trying to speak in very simple terms in order to change the system. And also recognizing what is already driving the system and what could the system look like. So some of this is envisioning a different world, the different world of what the system might act like and might look like. And in some cases, maybe people actually say the system shouldn't exist altogether. We should have something very different. And then if you're after dreaming very big, it is what are the steps that we can take that are practical and that are immediate to actually begin to, to dismantle and to change what the way the system is working. And when we see that is actually through building relationships with different entities that are part of the system and getting people to work together on changing how the system works. Okay, and then connecting them with the people most affected. Correct. That is a massive bridge to build. What (laughs) you've just talked about is inequity, systems and policies, and dismantling those systems and policies. And at the same time, What's sort of woven through all of this, but I don't see it necessarily as explicitly, is, sure. is the trust building. Yeah. We talked about relationship yeah, no, that's building, wonderful. but it's really about the trust building, right? Oh, I'm so glad you raised that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So talk more about that and how that fits into the work that you do and the work that you advise people on. So thank you for saying that. We have found that trust is the foundation of how this work will evolve and actually is the thing that either kind of holds back coalitions or progress or can be a great catalyst for it. What we actually do, believe it or not, is do workshops on how to build trust and how to address where trust is broken. And that has been probably the most profound and helpful pieces of moving coalitions forward is being able to know how to have the kind of crucial conversations um, that lay out for a group, here are the nine to 10 trust principles and how we're going to operate, and then going and having conversations one-on-one around where the trust is broken and how to actually repair it, if it is. And for people who, there's also situations where it's very nascent and people don't know each other. So how do we build trust? Because think about it also, we there are many people that are brought into coalitions that we don't know and we are coming in with preconceived notions and ideas about. So it's how do you actually get to know who those people are 
and actually have conversations about maybe some of the biases that you're holding. And this is where equity kind of fits in. And learn about who those people are so that you can actually build trust. So sometimes it's not broken. It just needs to be built in new ways and new understanding needs to be formed. Shocking news. Here in Arizona, we have cities and towns where people historically have been exploited, marginalized, neighborhoods disinvested in. It's a massive gap between the folks in those communities who need to live healthier lives and the people who are in power who are managing the systems and the policies. Yeah. Is it a bridge? Is it a life raft? What is it? What, what is it? What is it that you build, and how do you build it? Yeah, I think, especially with the massive amount of distrust and and flat out like we don't even want to work with those folks. Yeah, or those, or you know, from the top down, it's like, well, those people don't even know what they're those people. Those there, people. There it is. Right. There, right? Yeah. No, okay. that was that, that's right. And there, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that in the state in particular, and there's a lot of people that don't want to talk to each other either. Right. What we find is the most powerful thing to do when it can be done is to intentionally name and be explicit that you're working differently and to intentionally shift the power. So what is the best way to build trust in that situation if one is going to do it is to actually suggest I'm working differently here's how typically we've made grants. I'm just thinking if we're a foundation or here if we're the government. Here's typically how we've given out contracts and engaged with people. We actually want to hear from you and we want to we want to hear what you have to say and we want to actually give over some of the power to make decisions. To make decisions, to frame up and build a program yourselves, to actually be part of a coalition where you're making decisions the community, that is probably the most powerful thing to do to build trust between institutions and and those individuals. So there's a famous phrase that we hear all the time and that we recognize to have a great deal of truth in it. And it's very short and it goes, power does not yield. (laughs) So when you say you're gonna reframe and shift power, what methods do you employ to make those shifts possible when in fact power is very difficult to get to yield? I think this is the most difficult thing and I think it's rare. I think the cases of what we see most are probably engagement or listening. So the first stage is like, I'm going to listen or I'm going to engage. I'm going to have someone on a board. I'm going to have representation from the community. That is probably more common and still a big step you know, in, in different cases. I think where it is much bolder is when you actually have a situation where people are participating in making that kind of change for the communities themselves, and you have institutions saying, we're going to let you drive. And I think that is a much bigger shift that we don't see typically happening. Story time. Yeah. Tell us a story about an example (laughs) of this work that you sort of hold dear as like, man, that was the best. Like, we got all this stuff. I'm actually going to tell you, I'm going to, I'm actually going to tell you a story here in Arizona to be hopeful about that, um, because I think that would be best for your listeners. And I am most excited when I think about the story for here in Arizona of the Arizona Early 
Childhood Alliance, or a ZICA, which is an early childhood network of 60 different organizations across the state that represents businesses, nonprofits, foundations, government organizations that several years ago, probably 10 years ago, came together to really form a strategy and goals around how to drive early childhood outcomes. The thing that's probably most exciting about this group is that they put together a real flexible network that they didn't want you know, one institution or multiple institutions to kind of yield power, but rather they wanted to build a coalition where multiple organizations could flexibly kind of stand up and lead on certain issues and then kind of step back when it wasn't their issue. Now, believe it or not, there's lots of issues around early childhood that some people, you know, there's a lot of issues there. So some people are really focused on kindergarten readiness. Other people really focused on third grade reading. Other people really focused on nutrition in, in, you know, in prenatal care, Right. And so what they determined was it would be more sustainable over the long term and they'd have more grassroots participation across residents and those that are engaged if they actually took on they became an advocacy organization or or, or I shouldn't say organization coalition that really was going to hold up different issues at the state house and and work to move those issues and engage the community in doing so. And that there was no one organization that was going to own this. That was really important from a power perspective. And that organizations could come under the banner. This is probably part of the secrets. They could come under the banner of Azika and be part of it, even if not every single one of its issues was completely in line. And that's what's amazing about this, the group, I think, in particular, is they've been able to keep together a coalition that has more participation at the State House, as I understand it, in the thousands now, you know, of both community members and then also leaders coming together to kind of advocate on early childhood issues, largely because they don't have one organization or even two or three organizations or just the government represented, but they're really trying to represent the people and the kids of Arizona. They've also had tremendous success in getting federal grants to come in and unlock child care subsidies so that more kids could actually get the child care and, and early education that they were looking for. So they've had wins in the legislature, but also financial wins that have helped them kind of sustain over time. And I think it's really impressive how they've got organizations collaborating, not competing, but also residents that are engaged and want to actually speak at the state house. Was that a so- helpful example? And just like that, that's part one of our discussion. It's not quite a cliffhanger, but doesn't it end in a way that makes you want to listen to the next episode? In part two, we're going to go a little deeper into the work itself as it relates to communities and schools. And then we're going to decode what works for coalitions by talking through 10 elements that have emerged from Community Wealth Partners' two decades of research. These are the keys to producing collaborative success. It's a fascinating conversation that you don't want to miss. To make sure you get that episode and every episode when it is released, be sure to reach into your podcast app right now and subscribe to The Vitalist Spark. As always, remember this, with great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.